Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C., a host of the channel. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Julia Obertreis, author of Imperial Desert Dreams, Cotton Growing and Irrigation in Central Asia, 1860 to 1991, published in 2017 by VNR Uni Press. Dr. Overtreis holds the Chair of Modern and East European History at the University of Erlangen-Nuremberg in Germany. She has published on a variety of topics, including oral history, environmental history, the history of infrastructure across the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. She also serves as the Chair of the Germany-based Association for Historians Working on Eastern Europe. Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk about your uh, book today, which I've, I've read recently with uh, great pleasure. Um, and in the book, you're kind of looking at the, uh, the infrastructure of cotton growing in Central Asia, both in the imperial and uh, Soviet periods. And you're paying specific attention to kind of the infrastructure surrounding water and um generally the state's plans to transform the region. But I, I want to start with a very basic question and ask how, how you decided to start studying, uh, you know, to start studying Central Asia in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been to Central Asia for the first time in 1992 when I was a student. Uh, and this was just after the breakdown of the Soviet Union uh, and as you can imagine, it was a very interesting period uh, to be there as a visitor. It was a tumultuous period, I would say. Um, and we had lived together with a friend. We had lived uh, in St. Petersburg um, for several months. Um, and then we started traveling around the former Soviet Union. We went to Ukraine and then we went to Astrakhan. And from there, via train, um, to Tashkent. 
uh, and when we got uh, when we got there, we got arrested by the police at the train station because uh, we hadn't cared for visa for Uzbekistan uh, that had been introduced just a few weeks or months before, and we didn't know about it or didn't care about it. Uh, so this was a very exciting beginning, and we were at the police station and were uh, interrogated, so to say. But they were quite friendly, and after some time, they released us, uh, but told us that we cannot um, live in a hotel because we don't have have a visa. Visa, and um, so we had to rent some apartment, and that was uh, part of a quite interesting stay in Uzbekistan. Uh, we stayed there for two or three months, uh, weeks, uh, I, I think. And uh, so this was my first encounter with Central Asia in a very interesting time. And later, um, after I had finished my PhD thesis, which was on housing in, in uh, Leningrad in the 20s and the 30s, um, I worked like a kind of freelancer for a while um, and worked for an institute um, near Berlin um, and they um, did some work on the history of water. Uh, and that was not about Eastern Europe or Soviet Union, but just the history of water in Germany and France and the history of the River Rhine. But I got very interested in these uh, questions of water history, environmental history. Uh, and then I was searching for some water project that I could do on Eastern Europe. Um, and a colleague told me to work on the irrigation systems in Central Asia. Uh, and as I had been there before, um, I found that very interesting and, and just started to, to work on it. Uh, and then it was, um, uh, was quite difficult to get the permission to get into the archives in Tashkent. Um, I knew that I have to receive a permission from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, and I tried to get it through the Uzbek embassy in Berlin. Um, and they invited me for, for tea. Uh, <laughs> we were sitting there having tea, uh, having some very nice sweets. Uh, it was a really nice atmosphere. And we were talking about my project. And then they promised to get me the permission. And um, it took several months. I was waiting and waiting. and uh, But in the end, I got the permission. I could enter the archives in Tashkent. Um, and what was this when you were um, first entering the archives in Tashkent? Um, I've been there in 2007 and 2008. Okay. Um, and I think I've been to the Central State Archive in Tashkent and to the Central State Archive of Scientific, Technical, and Medical Documentation. Um, and I think I was lucky to be there at that time, because at that time it was really easy to work there. Uh, and later on it, it got more difficult. Um, so I, was, I could order almost everything I wanted from, from, the, from the funds, and um, I received it quite quickly. I could could photograph uh, documents, I could do copies, and it was all uh, relatively cheap. Um, so I could get a lot of material in, in a rather short time, and that was really good. Mm -hmm. And what kind of materials were you working with there? Um, and, and did you find that like the materials you were finding changed the project in any way, or did you go in 
and actually find the materials that you expected to find in the first place? No, I, I really didn't know what to expect. <laughs> uh, and I didn't have any um, uh, archival information, you know, before I went there. So um, I just got there and, and started searching. Uh, and yeah, I think for the pre-revolutionary period, I don't have uh, archival material. I have published um, materials. But for the Soviet, uh, and especially from the 1930s onwards, um, I have quite a lot of archival material, and um, I think it's a very important part of my sources. Um, and it allowed me to to get insights into how the state was dealing with with cotton growing and and with irrigation, and which problems were they were aware of and which kind of solutions they thought sought and and so that's really a big big part of my 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 source base mm -hmm. and i think it comes through with the kind of arguments that you're trying to make um and specifically i wanted to kind of ask about your approach um i know that you kind of use this this term high modernism uh, popularized by james scott but you seem to be kind of trying to push either the limits of high modernism forward or kind of um, adjusting his original analysis um, in your own work. So I was wondering if you could like speak to that, like what does the Soviet case tell us about high modernism? What is high modernism? And how might this, how might your um, approach actually allow us to think more comparatively about Soviet history um, in kind of a global context? Mm. I think high modernism is a good concept to enable comparisons. Um, comparisons between the Soviet Union and especially Central Asia and the West on the one hand, but also with non-Western contexts and countries on the other hand. Um, what is at the core of high modernism? High modernism is the drive to transform nature and human societies at the same time, according to standardized plans, plans designed at drawing boards. And these plans, these schemes, as uh, Scott calls them, uh, do not take into account local conditions, um, which is their major flaw. Uh, so I'm thinking of, for example, of the size and form of cotton fields, um, on the setting up of irrigation schemes and sofros farms and so on. Um, there were plans for model cotton fields, for example, uh, which were, of course, large and rectangular. Uh, and there is even a quotation by Khrushchev um, who said that a correct square Pravilni uh, Quadrat is the basis for the usage of machines. So this was the connection between the form of the fields and the usage of machines, the mechanization drive the Soviets had. Um, so, yeah, I'm as you said, I'm not uh, an, an uncritical supporter of higher modernism as it is laid out by by James Scott. Um, and in the introduction of my book, I criticize it in some detail for not um, giving information on historical periods 
um, where high modernism was strongest, that's very vague in his work. Uh, there's also the criticism that high modernism, modernism centers too much on the state as a central actor um, and some other, po other points. But I tried in my book to historicize this concept of high modernism, um, so to say, to bring some historical flesh to the bones. But yeah, in the end, I think that this approach might help in enabling comparisons. And it's also a pragmatic reason that made me ch choose it as a central approach, because this concept is well-known, not only in historiography, but also in other disciplines. And I'm curious, so, um, you know, kind of, I, I like this approach of trying to historicize, like, high modernism, and, and um, I think this is what allows you to actually look at, like, very, you know, sometimes very drastic, but sometimes very um, nuanced changes happening um, throughout this this large period, you know, you're looking at the you're you're looking at a period from the 1860s all the way up to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I'm wondering, like broadly, what what changes we see in the production of cotton, in the um, in the manipulation of water resources um, from the late imperial period through the the Soviet period. Do we see any kind of continuities between? Uh, you know, across the revolutionary divide, um, maybe in, in places um, that we might not have expected them. I know you have this, uh, you, you spend some time looking at um, kind of late imperial officials who actually uh, did play a role in imagining what cotton cultivation would look like in the 1920s and 1930s. So I was wondering if you could speak to some of those themes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I think there are really important continuities and I tried to stress them in my book because usually you have the research not only on Central Asia but also on the Soviet or, or Russia and the Soviet Union in general is more or less divided into the research done on the imperial period up to the October Revolution and the research on the Soviet period. Um, and I try to, you know, look at both periods and uh, stress the continuities. And one major continuity is the idea of becoming independent of foreign cotton imports. Um, what is called in Russian, it was termed the Chlopkovaya Nisavisimost. Um, and that idea was coming up in the 1880s, 1890s. It was partly a consequence of the Uh, American Civil War um, because uh, cotton imports from, from the US dropped down at that period and several countries were looking for alternative sources of cotton imports. Uh, and then it is more and more popularized and, and it is used by many authors uh, in the imperial period. And then it is transferred very smoothly into the Soviet period and the Soviet state also tried very much to become independent of, of foreign cotton imports. Uh, and the second continuity is um, the idea of cultivating the region, Central Asia, through irrigation and through agriculture, especially cotton growing. And that implies to make it green, um, 
which was f more familiar to, to uh, Slavic um, observers and authors writing about it um, to make it more productive, uh, to make it more modern and also more civilized. Um, so this idea of cultivating is very clearly expressed uh, in the imperial period and then it is also taken up uh, in the Soviet period, although maybe in a little bit different, in a different framing, of course, and also a little bit different wording, I would say. But of course, you also have um, strong differences. Um, and one of them very obvious is that, uh, that the conditions of um, property um, owning and owning land and, and water and so on are changing. Um, in the 20s, um, the communists had ideas of strengthening the corporations. But then, as we all know, the collectivization of agriculture started. Um, and although it met with much resistance, especially in Central Asia, um, it was carried through and, and was enforced. And so the, the socio-economic setting was changed very much. Um, but another important um, ch change is uh, the inclusion of Central Asians. Um, uh, we all know this famous term, Korenizatia, um, the politics of including the non-Russian or minority peoples Uh, into all sectors of life and also into leadership positions. Um, and this started in the 20s, of course, and often you can read that in the 30s it was kind of, it ended and then there was Russian chauvinism, uh, Russian dominance and so on. But uh, in fact, I think that these ideas of inclusion, uh, that they went on in the post-war period as well. And um, Korenizatia as a principle, it didn't stop. And uh, to the contrary, the main results of Korenizatia came into effect in the post-war period um, when you had a significant number of students um, in all spheres, um, but also the first um, leadership uh, persons uh, in, in the spheres of politics, quite a, quite a few and from the 20s on, of course, but also in the spheres of technical expertise, although less than, for example, in education, uh, the first um, um, professors and uh, Dr. Ranauk. Uh, so I, I would say that, that um, this inclusion of Central Asians, who also became uh, the carriers of these ideas of um, modernity and progress and growth and so on uh, is a very important um, difference between the imperial and the Soviet period. Yeah, and so <clears throat> based on what you've just said, um, you know, we see a lot of similarities. I mean, we see a very familiar periodization of Soviet history here. You know, you've talked about the 1920s, you've talked about collectivization, you've talked about kind of... Um, a bit like expansion of, of opportunities uh, to some extent uh, for Central Asians in the in the immediate post-war period. Um, 
you know, one benefit I think of your book is that you're looking at, at such a long, you know, you're looking at more than just the Soviet period, but we get the whole span of, of the Soviet period, you know, and I'm just curious, um, do you see that the history of cotton production and, um, and of the manipulation of water resources, um, does, does your focus on, on these aspects of Soviet history still in some ways conform to, um, the typical contours of, of Soviet history that we see, you know, um, which, which largely follow leadership. You know, we, we talk about the Stalin period. We talk about the changes under Khrushchev and then kind of the, I, I guess they would call it the stagnation under Brezhnev. Mm. Um, do you see these similar, like, like, I don't know, was there anything surprising that you found in the history of cotton production that, that maybe challenges this typical periodization or does it confirm it in a lot of ways? Uh, I think um, that cotton growing is um, relatively independent of changes in political leadership. Um, and irrigation is too, in a way, I would say. Um, but also you can see... so. I don't see that there are the big watersheds, you know, connected to the changes in, in leadership. Um, and, and you have these very, you know, the general trends to, to receive more and more cotton from Central Asia, this preference for mechanization and what, what was called chemicalization. So this is the usage of pesticides and herbicides. And also the strong personal ties between the sphere of politics, the state and the party, uh, and the sphere of technical expertise and the actual building and setting up of canals and cotton fields. So all this is connected by, by personal relations. And this goes through the Soviet period, I would say. Um, and the continuities are more important in the end uh, than some changes. But, and also you can see that um, you have, you know, strong continuities between late Stalinism and the Khrushchev period. Uh, for example, uh, there was a campaign to enlarge cotton fields, the Ukrupnenia it was called. Uh, the late 1940s it begins, so it begins in the Stalin period and is then um, carried on in the Khrushchev time. Um, uh, and and all this, you know, this um, striving to to uh, enlarge irrigation systems and to really uh, go to to big solutions. This is um, something that also um, connects the Khrushchev and the Brezhnev periods. Um, so, in general, in in Soviet history, we. Uh, have this trend to underline the continuities, especially between the Khrushchev and the Brezhnev periods, and to develop new perspectives on the Brezhnev period, and, and then not to see it only as as um, as a period of stagnation, but also to see it as a period of change. And and also, I would like to say that uh, environmental history and infrastructure history. Allows, uh, allows us to challenge um, existing political periodizations. But as you said, they, they are still very strong for Soviet history. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, and I, I actually wanted to turn to um, kind of the question of environmental history and environmental issues um, in, in the next question, because, you know, you're looking at Uzbekistan primarily, although um, you do spend some of the book looking at Turkmenistan as well. Um, and maybe you can talk about um, what sources you used uh, to look at Turkmenistan. I'm sure our listeners would find that very interesting. But, you know, the, the kind of elephant in the room is uh, the Aral Sea, um, mm. which is typically when people who are kind of familiar with Central Asia and familiar mm. with like environmental issues like the drying up of the Aral Sea comes to mind. And this is, of course, directly linked uh, with irrigation schemes and, and cotton production. Um, but you look at a kind of interesting aspect of this, um, which is kind of the emergence of, of, mm. of an environmental consciousness in the late 1970s and 1980s. And um, I think this, maybe you were alluding to this, this is one of those moments that, that we can actually learn something new about Soviet history that challenges those dominant political narratives. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I know you spend some time in that, uh, looking at that in the book, so I think it would be very interesting to hear about. Mm-hmm. Yes, you you mentioned the the drying up or the siltation of the RSC. Um, this is the major and and very well known phenomenon. Um, I think almost everybody has heard of it who who has something to do with with Central Asia or with the Soviet Union. Um, but um, there were also other serious ecological problems like um, which stemming from from cotton growing and irrigation uh, which like like water logging uh, or the salinization of groundwater and of soils and we also had a, a strong water deficit um, a shortage of water uh, beginning from from the 70s from I have sources on the late um, 1970s uh, that people were complaining uh, that that They didn't have enough water, not only for irrigation, but also for for drinking. Um, and um, so you have these serious environmental problems. Uh, and um, people were, of course, reacting to it. And um, I think it is one of the strengths of my book that it shows how environmentalism uh, gradually emerges uh, and gets stronger. Um, although there's no linear development from the 70s to the 80s. Um, and Central Asia is a region that was and is very much affected by, by man-made changes in the environment. Uh, so it's no surprise that people got aware of it and were concerned. But usually when you think of environmentalism in the Soviet Union, you don't necessarily think of, of uh, Central Asia. Um, But I found that, that Central Asia fits uh, very well into the general Soviet pattern, uh, that we have a more 
um, so to say, elitist um, environmentalism. It's not a broad social movement from below or grassroots movement like we have it in the West in, in that at that time, but it's more expressed in uh, academic journals, uh, also in the general press. Um, um, so it's more, you know, the carriers of, of this environmentalism um, are more like scholars and writers. Um, but also, of course, we have a state-driven environmentalism. Um, there's quite a lot of um, good laws, so to say, on, on environmental protection uh, in the Soviet Union and also in Central Asia. And they tried to get control of all the problems via inspections, for example. But um, uh, you referred to the perestroika and, and to um, periodization questions. Um, I think it's very important to state that environmentalism in Central Asia and also in general in the Soviet Union did not emerge only under uh, during the perestroika time, but uh, it emerged much much more earlier. Earlier, um, we are not. There's no consensus on this, whether it's the early 70s or the mid 70s or the late 70s. <laughs> but uh, in in fact, many people do agree that um, that there is some kind of modern environment environmentalism emerging in in the 70s, uh, and it its subjects, you know, get get more and more serious, and um, there are certain structures that are confirmed certain journals, certain institutions for most of all the Academy of Sciences, which plays a major role. And um, when perestroika starts, uh, the conditions for making these problems, for getting them into the public, they, these conditions change, of course. You have uh, a much broader variety of um, possibilities to express these problems in the press. There, there are new formats like roundtables and so on. But um, the subjects, um, and also I think in many cases the people who were working on this, they were there before before the mid eighties. Yeah, I think you bring up some interesting points. You know, I'm thinking about um, one. Um, how this story in Central Asia might relate to kind of like follows contours that we see elsewhere, especially in Russia and, and other places within the Soviet Union. I'm thinking of the work of uh, Douglas Weiner and um, people like Stephen Brain who have kind of looked at how um, there is kind of a unique way in which environmentalism emerges in the Soviet Union that, as you said, like does emerge in official institutions um, in, in a way that kind of contrasts what we see in, in, in the West, um, which I find fascinating. But it's interesting to see how this is developing in a Central Asian context. You know, I know from looking at Tajikistan that we see similar um, criticisms of the, the hydroelectric station kind of building and the creation of d dams in Tajikistan, um, which many people started to see, um, um, you know, like not only caused um, suffering on, on humans, but also on the environment. And, um, you know, the, the contemporary states in Central Asia are in some ways dealing with these legacies in, in very important ways. And actually the creation of independent states has 
um, exacerbated these problems or kind of created new um, related problems of, of kind of dealing uh, with with these um, legacies. So I, I think it's, mm. uh, you know, not only are you telling a really important story, but I think we can see the ways in which it's, it's still um, a problem today. Yeah. Um, so I think that's another kind of aspect of the book and, mm. um, that I really liked. Um, and yeah, could you, could you talk a little bit more about, um, this, this comparison between, um, environmentalism in the Soviet Union and in the West? Um, is there room for comparison, uh, between those two kind of like movements or consciousness or whatever we want to call it? Um, yes, I think there is room for comparison, um, but what we find uh, is, is, of course, um, quite um, strong differences in terms of the structure of these environmentalisms. By the way, this is a very good term, environment, envir environmentalism in English, um, as opposed to... Uh, Umweltbewegung in German. In German, you have environmental movement. Uh, but as I said, I don't think you can speak of a movement in the Soviet case. And environmentalism is, as a term, is much broader and, and can include all kinds of activities and thinking. And um, this is um, a good term to use <laughs> uh, for comparison. Um, Uh, yeah, in the West, in the West, I mean, it was also, of course, state-driven environmentalism. It was not only uh, a movement from below, um, and from below means mostly students, uh, young people, but also in some cases um, farmers. For example, when it came to the construction of um, nuclear power stations in Germany, for example, you had this. Um, a really broad movement, including local citizens and and peasants um, who didn't want this to be built in their region. Um, and um, but you also have, of course, a, a state agenda. You have some kind of, of agencies concerned with environmental problems, and you can very well, I think, compare this to the Soviet case and to uh, other socialist countries um, as well. And when we look at the socialist countries, um, we see that, um, okay, there were um, laws for environmental protection, the protection of soils, of waters, of the air, and so on. Um, but in many cases, these laws were not followed and they remained on paper. Um, because they were not not really enforced. Um, this is a big problem. Um, and also you have this kind of um, strong role of, of the writers, um, not only journalists who take up these subjects of environmental protection, but also writers uh, in their works. Uh, they write about nature, their views on nature, and these views on nature, they are changing very much because from the official side, from the socialist propaganda, so to say, you had this uh, view on nature as nature has to be conquered, uh, very much related to, in, in the case of Central Asia, to the steppe and the desert, uh, to conquer the steppe, to conquer the desert, uh, to make it obedient to man. And also it's related to water. Uh, a river has to 
um, flow the way the man wants it to flow and um, irrigation water from the river is used for irrigation and should not, you know, just flow into the Aral Sea and evaporate. Um, and um, so these um, ideas, of socialist official ideas of nature um, were quite one-sided um, and uh, in contrast to this, um, you had other ideas uh, of nature being something sacred, being something to be protected and so on. Uh, and um, yeah, these are specifics, I would say, um, of the Soviet case that there are, these ideas are expressed uh, very much in the spheres of scholarly work and uh, in the sphere of literature and by the writers. And um, yeah, I, w I, I just kind of want to uh, take that a little bit further and think about um, kind of the, the current moment and, and kind of since the collapse of the Soviet Union, I know this is a little bit out of the scope of your book, but I was wondering if you could kind of comment like on how, how this kind of cotton industry and the irrigation systems within Uzbekistan or in Central Asia in, in a broad way um, like how the Soviet period has kind of uh, left its legacy on, on those industries and those kind of relationships between state and economy. And, um, you know, aside from, from the obvious um, RLC conundrum, um, I'm just curious if you can speak to that in, 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 in kind of a, um, in any particular way. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, I, see, I think that uh, the Soviet legacy is very strong. <laughs> um, in the cotton sector, the cotton sector is still a very, very important sector in Uzbekistan to this day. Um, and um, there are several major problems which are connected um, to the political authoritarian rule in Uzbekistan but also partly to the so Soviet legacy. Um, and one is that, that that cotton growing is so central um, for state politics, but also, I would say, for uh, national Uzbek identity. And this is what I try to show. I think this is a study, is an aspect that can be studied in more detail, Uh, in future research by somebody else. <laughs> um, but um, I try to show that in the 80s you have this discourse on um, cotton as a national pride. You know, cotton very much related to what it means to be uh, Uzbek uh, and Soviet Uzbek. Um, and um, yeah, cotton is, is still the, the central economic sector and it's very much state-controlled. Um, and there's still much um, coercion um, uh, going with that. People are forced to go to the cotton harvests to work on the fields. Uh, and you know that there is a problem of child labor as well, which is addressed um, oftenly, but um, as far as I know, it hasn't really changed so much. Um, And, and also, of course, you have a very concrete material legacy of irrigation systems um, that remain from the Soviet period. 
um, and um, that cannot be changed um, very very quickly. Um, so in many cases, on the spot, you have the um, irrigation systems that were built uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and they are still still used, of course. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and these are kind of things that are important to keep in mind, I think. Um, you know, I, I've, I've just been kind of reflecting and, and thinking about how um, Central Asia is experiencing the pandemic right now and how actually these, these questions are uh, really important, you know, to think about kind of monoculture and, and how um, people still kind of need to uh, produce cotton in order to uh, keep their livelihoods going and how the pandemic might be affecting that. So these are just things that I think we need to continue to think through. Um, so I appreciate your answer on that. And um, I think we're actually uh, nearing the end of our time here, but I wanted to give you a chance, Julia, to talk about maybe future research projects, um, things that you are thinking through right now, um, yeah, give you an opportunity to share um, any uh, plans you might have or ideas that you're thinking about. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, thank you. Um, uh, in terms of research on Central Asia, uh, I am currently working on a special issue together with Jonas van der Straten. It's, he's a German, he's a historian as well. He's from the Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany. Uh, in April, we had a workshop um, via Zoom. This was the beginning of the Corona period. <laughs> and um, it was my first major event on Zoom. Um, and I was excited. I didn't know if it would really work out, but it was really good. Uh, we were talking with colleagues from Central Asia, from different countries, from Russia, from Germany, from France. And um, yeah, it was really fun. Um, and now we are doing the special issue. It's on technology, temporality, and the study of Central Asia. And it will be a special issue of um, Central Asian Survey. Um, so it's the history of technology. And um, it's also about infrastructure. Uh, roads play a, a major role, for example. Um, but it's connected to the problems or questions of temporality for Central Asia often being depicted as, as backward, you know, some a region that has to be brought into modernity and so on. And we will try to, to reflect on these issues. Um, also, I have another project, and this is my main research project right now. It's on the history of smoking and non-smoking uh, in the post-war uh, 20th century period. Um, there's a fabulous book by Trisha Starks. It's called Smoking Under the Tsars. It's about the smoking of papyrosi in the imperial period. Mm. Uh, and she's currently working on a book on smoking in the Soviet Union as well. Um, my project is much broader geographically uh, and it will examine transfers and exchange between Western and Eastern countries. So I intend to include the USA, England, Italy, Germany, Germany East and West, uh, Bulgaria, Poland, and the Soviet Union. And within the Soviet Union, 
besides Russia and Ukraine, Central Asia will be of special interest, of course. Uh, this might sound like a crazy idea, like a megalomaniac idea, but much of this project will be based on existing literature um, plus some chosen source uh, materials. Um, and if anybody who uh, will listen to it has any ideas about smoking in Central Asia or has some um, advice on interesting sources or something, uh, please let me know. Great. Both of those projects sound really interesting. And, um, you know, we'll definitely be looking for the, uh, the special edition there. And the, the greater research project also sounds uh, fascinating. And hopefully we can have you back on New Books Network um, once you complete the, uh, the book project. Um, well, Julia, I wanted to thank you again uh, for coming on the show. And just a, a reminder to our readers, um, if you're interested in, in some of the themes we talked about today, check out uh, Julia Obertrice's book, Imperial Desert Dreams, Cotton Growing, and Irrigation in Central Asia, 1860 to 1991, published in 2017 by VNR Uni Press. So thanks again, Julia. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. <laughs>